It's day 34 of Heart Dive 365. I'm your Bible study friend, Kanoi. Welcome to the Heart Dive Podcast. Well, I am full on sports mom mode today. So thank you for bearing with me. Thank you for your patience. I had a wrestling tournament to attend today. So as late as this is getting out, I'm doing my best. Today, we are hitting the climax of Exodus with the miraculous deliverance and the crossing of the Red Sea, something that the Israelites will remember forever. So before we get into that, if you could please help us out, partner with us by giving this video a thumbs up, making sure you're subscribed to the channel, got that notification bell on so that you know when these videos come out. And also make sure you head on over to our website, heartdive.org, if you have any questions or if you need to search for something is all there. All the questions that you are going to have are right there on our website. Otherwise, we have a ton of ground to cover today. So let's go ahead and pray and get into it. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Please give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us of our sins, Lord, and help us to forgive others. And I pray, Lord, that you will not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and power and glory forever. We love you so, so much and are so grateful to just be able to bask in your presence on this Sunday for those who are with us in real time. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we left off with the institution of the Passover. And here in chapter 13, God lays out more of the foundational institutions for the Israelites with the consecration of the firstborn here in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast is mine. So this word consecrate actually means to make holy, to set apart. It means to sacrifice so that you could show that it belongs to God. And why does the firstborn belong to God? Why is he making this such a big deal? Because remember that Israel is considered the firstborn of God. God declared that. That is the very reason that he dealt with Egypt's firstborn. So this is his way of saying, hey, remember, you all are my firstborn, so I need you to give me your first, give me your best. And his intention with the firstborn from the very beginning was that these would become the priests. But eventually, the only ones who are allowed to do so come from the tribe of Levi, who God will declare as taking place of the firstborn. Verse 3, then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you out into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. So remember, this month of Abib is actually the month of Nisan. It's that month in March and April, which now has become the first month of the Jewish calendar. So this is him laying out the foundation of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He's already talked about it, but here he's kind of putting his stamp on it. And this is intended to be a joyful celebration. Remember, he's got two gatherings or two assemblies on the front end and on the back end of this seven-day festival. So it's like a week-long party for these people. So seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. And again, why no leaven? Because this is going to represent the fact that they did not have time to allow the bread to rise with the leaven, and it marks their 
urgent exit out of Egypt. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you up out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. Now, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart, which in a sense would be to mark as distinct or special to the Lord, all that first opens the womb. And just as he is declaring for them to have a very distinctive mark, the world also has marks and symbols for almost everything. I mean, nations have flags, companies have logos. We all, in a sense, brand ourselves or we place ourselves under specific flags and we mark ourselves as Christians by the way that we live. You see, in Romans 12, Paul gives us the marks of a true Christian, which some of them are displayed through love honor, patience, hospitality, joy, humility. So heart check, what marks or outward signs distinguish you from the world? Is there a difference? Now, this is not a question that is asking you, how are you better than anyone? That's not what we're saying. It is a way to evaluate whether or not the words that we speak or the love that we display or the way that we live is godly in an ungodly world. So Moses continues, all the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Why can't the donkey just be a firstborn sacrifice? Well, because the donkeys were not an acceptable sacrifice and therefore the lamb would have to take its place. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So, of course, no human sacrifice. And why are they having to, quote, buy back their firstborns? Well, again, God had a rightful claim on the firstborns of the Israelites whenever he passed over their homes in Egypt. And so this would serve as a reminder. It would show God's value on human life. And it also looked to the redemption of Jesus. And when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us up out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrificed to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. And this would be one of several verses that the Jewish people would then establish the wearing of the Teflon or what is a phylactery, which is basically like a small little box that they would put parchment rolls of scripture or parts of the Torah on it. And they would wear it literally on their head and on their wrists or arms as a reminder. And they would do this during their times of prayer. And what's interesting is that the Antichrist will actually imitate this very thing with the mark of the beast on the forehead or on the right hand. Now, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. Now, the Red Sea, we have found that actually means the Sea of Reeds. But the words Red Sea actually comes from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. Now, this journey from Egypt to Canaan really should have only taken about 10 days, but God is going to take them on a joyride through the wilderness for 40 years before they ever reach the edge of the promised land. 
plan. I mean, it's not really a joy ride. They're going to go through a whole lot of stuff and mostly due to their disobedience. But why did God do this? Why is he taking them on a different route that's probably more like a year-long journey? Well, we know from the text that he is leading them around the fortified cities of the Egyptians and even maybe the Philistines so that they do not have to fight premature battles. But just like us, they can't see what God can. And there will be times in our lives where God will change direction and he will lead us in a way that doesn't make sense to us. So we might have to quit a job that we love, or we might have to up and move to another city. And we will either choose to trust his guidance, or we can let go of his hand and then go our own way. And when we do that, one of two things is going to happen. We're either going to come face to face with the battles he was trying to protect us from, or we will miss out on the blessings that were ahead on the road he was trying to take us down. So heart check. If God changes direction in your life today, will you trust him and follow? So if we're starting off here in Egypt, they could have gone straight to Canaan, but it is thought, we actually don't know the exact route, but it is thought that they went from Egypt all the way down and all the way back up and around and around and all the way until they got to Canaan. Now, this is out of, again, the Rose Book of Bible Charts, Maps, and Timelines, one of my favorite books. I am actually going to be printing this out and putting it into my Bible, but I just didn't have the time to do it quite yet. So the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Now remember, this promise was made more than 400 years ago, but at least it's finally happening. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And this word Etham actually means with them. And of course, this makes sense because it is in the desert or the wilderness seasons whenever most of us are desperately looking for Jesus or desperately looking for the presence of God to be with us. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night, a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So this was God's divine divine presence, guiding them, leading them, bringing them comfort. Because if you think about a cloud in the middle of 125 degree heat of the day, this would have provided quite a bit of shade and quite a bit of comfort in the desert. If you live in the desert, you know what that 125 degree heat feels like, and you definitely are looking for clouds, which in Vegas, we don't get very many in the summer. But then that pillar of fire it not only provided warmth on the cool desert nights, but it also illuminated their path. And we can even liken this to the Word and the Holy Spirit who guides us day and night and is our assurance through everything that we would ever go through. So this cloud and this fire would have been known as a theophany, which is the appearance of God in a physical form. Chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal-Zephon. So Migdal means tower, Baal-Zephon, Baal would be their main god that the pagans were worshiping. So it means Baal of the north. And he continues, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. Why is he putting them by the sea? Because this is where he's going to miraculously deliver them. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness, has shut them in and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord 
and they did so. Now, this is not God being egotistical and being like, I need the glory, because remember, God has been so merciful to Pharaoh and to Egypt, giving them time after time after time, possibly over years to be able to repent, to leave their wicked ways, to honor Him, to serve Him, to recognize Him and acknowledge Him as God, but they refused. And so, again, this is why He is going to allow this to happen so that He can get the glory, so people will be able to know Him through this, because it wasn't enough for them to see Him in goodness. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So, how quickly one forgets after the plagues that they have just been through. So, because everything is hunky-dory now, they're like, we want our workers back. So, he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen or choice chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. Now, this word defiantly kind of actually means that they were going out ready for battle, cheering each other on, encouraged, because remember, it said before they were battle ready. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. So, they are outclassed. They are outnumbered because remember, chariots are the most sophisticated war machine at this time. And so, the Israelites don't have anything that can compare to that. Verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. So, clearly, they've only lifted up their eyes far enough to see the problem and they feared greatly. Now, remember that fear in itself is not actually a sin. It is what we do with that fear, how we handle that fear, how we respond, and we'll see how they do. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. That's okay, crying out to the Lord, but here's where they fail. And they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Oh boy. So they are being little bit snarky here. Now, the fear that the Israelites are feeling is pretty warranted, in my opinion. I mean, it's a natural response to a crisis. And the fear, again, itself is not the sin. Where it becomes sinful is how they are beginning to complain and speaking harshly to Moses, even saying that they would have been better off living in their enslaved life back in Egypt. Because when we begin to panic, any other place but where we are currently standing seems to be better. So, heart check. How do you face fear in the midst of a crisis or discomfort? Are you calm and trusting or panicked and complaining? Verse 13, and Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. And this word salvation here is related to room or space. So, in a sense, they are in a pressure cooker, and God is about to release the pressure of that space here. And I love what Moses tells them, do not fear, stand firm, dig in your heels, do what you know, and then you will see God save us. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. And this is pretty amazing to me that Moses encourages them in the midst of all of this criticism. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. 
So God is telling Moses, enough crying, pull up your big boy pants and get moving because faith requires action. And while there is a time to be still and know that he is God and there's a time to pray, sometimes we can get stuck in that stillness or we will use, I'm praying about it as a means to procrastinate and not move forward. And this doesn't mean that we don't pray, but at some point we have to be ready to move. So heart check. Are you still praying about something where God has told you to move forward? So again, he's like, don't give up. Don't go backwards. You need to move forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. Now, if we liken this whole situation to our spiritual life, whenever we escape the enemy, he's still going to pursue us. I mean, especially if we are making an impact for the kingdom. And some people will hear that and immediately say, then I don't want to pursue God if the devil's just going to attack me. But guess what? Whenever you are pursuing God, the greater than all, He moves in. He goes behind you. He goes before you. He stands in between you and the enemy. And there is no greater place to be than surrounded by His presence, knowing that no weapon formed against you shall prosper, or knowing that He's going to fight for you. You see, last year when I started this Bible study, I knew what I was up against. And boy, did the enemy come at me with some of the nastiest things that I'm still not at liberty to even speak about because of ongoing investigations. And these were direct attacks on my family. But I chose not to fear. I stood firm and I saw the salvation of the Lord just as He promised. And I am more confident today in God's providence and His protection because I know that He is that cloud that is lighting up the darkness and He is covering me. But if we run in the opposite direction of God out of fear that the devil's going to pursue us, well, guess where that leaves us? Unprotected and surrounded by the enemy instead. We'll be vulnerable and weak which is the one he knows he can quickly pick off like a rotting fruit on a tree. So that leaves this question. Who are you running towards? Who is surrounding you? So there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So this cloud was a source of light for the Israelites, but it was darkness for the Egyptians. And isn't that the way of the word? I mean, the very thing that lights our path is the very thing that's going to repulse unbelievers. And this is why there is so much hatred toward Christians, because the word is offensive to their lifestyle, and they will try to trap us in it, making us look like the bad guy in society. And the Bible says that this will happen. It's going to happen more and more. And we are blatantly seeing it happening in today's society. Verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. So notice that it was the Lord doing this. There was no power in the rod or the staff or anything that Moses was doing. God was doing it. But what Moses was doing was symbolic of God's power. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. 
Now the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. Because remember, even though the Israelites are walking over dry ground, I mean, the sea has just receded. So it had to have left some mud behind, right? So these chariots now trying to go through it is probably kicking up a whole lot of mud. And that was all part of God's plan. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon the horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. So we see here a total defeat. Now, of course, there's no record of this defeat because Egypt isn't going to record their own defeats. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Now, I'm not about to go here and try to talk about how this could have happened. We just know that it simply did. And there was an article, I believe, that came out in the 90s, I think in the New York Times, that actually explained the scientific reasoning behind how this happened, how this wind was so directed that it blew through the water and actually split the waters enough for the people to go through. And then once that happened, if you've ever watched those videos of rogue waves, it would all make sense as to how the water then went back into place and how quickly it happens. I mean, it's insane. There was just a video when I was scrolling through social media recently, I forget where it was, maybe in, gosh, was it Brazil? It was somewhere, maybe South America, I'm not sure. But there was this rogue wave that came up through a restaurant and the vast power of it just blew my mind. I mean, it was like breaking doors, knocking people down. Just incredible what the power of nature can do. And of course, all of that being in the hand of God. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. So in the end, this is exactly what the Lord intended to happen. His great power was revealed, and the Israelites' faith was transformed from this whiny fear to now reverent fear. And this was the pivotal moment for the Israelites. It was the climax of witnessing firsthand what God can do. Yet sadly, they won't remain in this state of mind because just like Pharaoh, how quickly we will forget what God has done. We cry out in our Red Sea moments of life where we feel as though we are in an impossible situation. And we promise that if God just gets us through this one time, we promise to be better and we will live differently. And then the waters recede, life goes back to normal, and it almost becomes an ancient legend in our minds. So don't ever forget the times that He made a way where there seemed to be no way and where He fought for you. You didn't even have to say a word. All you needed to do was be still and hold your peace. And so now we see the first recorded song here in chapter 15. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord for He has tried 
triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Now, of course, the Lord being Yahweh. Now, this part here being a man of war kind of trips people up sometimes because they're like, how can this God who is supposed to be this God of love also be a God of war? Well, you have to remember his nature as one who loves us. And it's just like any parent who will go to war to protect their children. So he isn't out there just slaying innocent people. He knows exactly what he is doing. Everything he does is out of love and with mercy and grace. We don't know his thoughts. We don't know the future of a particular person where God might take their life early. And this is where a lot of the time our faith is going to have to be enacted is when someone does die at such an early age. So the song continues, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like stones. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the hearts of the sea. And the enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy destroy them. But you blew with your wind, the sea covered them, and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And we know the answer to that. There's no one that compares to our God. You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. And this word steadfast love is another word for mercy or his faithful or loyal love. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode, which is ultimately Israel. The peoples have heard, they tremble, pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed, trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. So in other words, all the surrounding nations are in fear of God. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone. So there is an overwhelming dread that is filling the surrounding area. Till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. So here they are expressing their hope as to what God is going to do in bringing them into their promised land and also looking toward the building of the tabernacle. Now, this song is so powerful that there are parts of it actually repeated in Revelation chapter 15, also in Psalm 118. And then Miriam, his sister, is actually going to continue on this song. But first in verse 19, for when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand 
band and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And I was like, man, I would love to know what Miriam's voice was like as a worship leader. I mean, here we're seeing kind of like this first worship night in the Bible. And a prophetess was someone who spoke authoritatively from God. And that was according to the New King James Version Study Bible. That's what that said. Verse 22, then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Mara, which means bitter. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log. It was something that was probably already there. He just didn't know. And he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. And we can look at this log as symbolic of the cross because it is a tree or it is wood, right? And anytime you take the cross and you throw it into a bitter situation, watch how it becomes sweet. Especially if you are able to realize that every single thing has been dealt with at the cross, including the things that other people do. So if we allow our offenses to be nailed to the cross, we also have to allow other people's offenses to be nailed to the cross as well. So this stop at Mara was simply a test by God. And some people will hear the word test and automatically be turned off thinking that testing is a negative thing that God is doing to us. But if we understand what a test is, that is just an inspection of what is going on on the inside or maybe even checking if something works, then we will see it more as an assessment rather than an attack. So here at Mara, God is setting this litmus paper of bitter water on their tongues to see whether they are acidic or neutral, if they're nuclear or at peace. And sure enough, they immediately erupt into complaining. So they're basically acidic. But it wasn't the water that made them bitter. The bitterness was already within them. It's the same way that people or situations don't actually make us bitter. That bitterness comes from within us. I mean, look at Jesus. He was beaten. He was spit on. He was falsely accused. He was hung on a cross. Yet he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Sweetness poured out of him, not bitterness. So every opportunity in life is one where we can either become bitter or better. The choice is ours. So heart check, when you get a bad taste in your mouth, do you become bitter or better? Do you seek the sweetness of living water or do you turn to murmuring and complaining? We continue in verse 25. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. In other words, I am Jehovah Rapha. So here we see God putting limitations, a rule, a boundary in place, and he does that so that he can protect us. Anytime he puts a fence around us, it is to keep us within these boundary lines that he knows is best for us. Because when we go beyond that, that is where we put ourselves out there to be vulnerable for attack. And if he is saying that in the same breath that he is saying he is our healer, we have to look at this situation and the fact that he is saying, I can heal you from all of that bitterness 
and all of that unforgiveness. And I'm going to heal you not only spiritually, but also physically. Because if you think about it, bitterness, unforgiveness, anger, those types of things, it actually increases our stress levels. It increases the cortisol within our bodies. I mean, I am no doctor, but this is what I've learned over the years of trying to be healthy. And ultimately, whenever you have an increase in cortisol, it will also increase things like your cholesterol, your blood pressure, even your blood sugar, and there's inflammation in your body, which leads to a host of other things. And so if we can let go of that, if we can somehow release that stress, if we can bring peace back into our lives, I really believe so many of us would be healed from so many of the diseases that we deal with today. Then they came to Elam, which means mighty ones, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. So God has taken them from this place of bitterness where they are parched to a place of bountiful provision. So let's take a look at some of our deep dive questions. How can the consecration of the firstborn and the feast of unleavened bread be applied to our lives today? What practical ways can we remember God? Have you ever had a Red Sea or what seemed to be an impossible moment in your life? What are ways you can be still or hold your peace in today's busy society? What does God's response to the Israelites grumbling display about His character? And what does the resting and provision at Elam symbolize for God's ultimate plan? So Heavenly Father, I pray that we will live our lives in constant remembrance of You. We trust in Your divine guidance and recognize that You are constantly assuring us through Your Word and by Your presence. So I pray that we stay close to that comfort always within your warm embrace and walking only where you are illuminating our path. We know that sometimes you will change directions and lead us in a way that doesn't make sense or maybe even takes a little longer than we desire. But we know that you can see things that we can't. So we trust that as you lead us through the wilderness seasons of our lives, there are lessons to be learned along the way that will prepare us for the day that we do enter into our promise that you have laid out before us. So I thank you for setting us free, Jesus. It is by your redeeming blood that our spirits can dance and run this race with vigor. We can worship with abandon, knowing that this life is far better than the one we were living in our Egypt. And I pray that you will continue to rid us of our old ways, knowing that they will hinder us from walking in that freedom that you so desire for us. And I pray that we will always bring our first and our best to you in everything that we do. We don't do it because we feel that it's a debt to be paid, but because you are simply worthy of it. And I thank you for saving us out of what seems to be impossible situations. There are times in our lives when we know that our backs are up against the wall or we see no way out or through the storm. Yet you somehow make a way. You go before us, you stand behind us, you surround our enemy whenever he pursues. So we thank you for your great providence and protection. I pray that we never forget our Red Sea moments in life and never forsake the opportunity to bring you glory in it. I pray that when we do face these moments, that we will immediately turn to you for guidance rather than to complain or look back at what used to be. We know that forward is the only direction you want us to go. So when it is time to move, Lord, I pray that we will be faithful to start walking in faith. May we never delay or get stuck in the stillness or seasons of hiding in prayer. 
You have given us a spirit of power, of love, and of a sound mind. And so I pray that when you say go, we will pull up our big kid pants and march forward. We fully trust that you will not lead us into a path of destruction, but will light the way to freedom. So we praise you and we exalt you today for you are our strength and our song, our mighty God who casts the enemy into the sea, who crushes his head, who shatters his plans. Forgive us, Lord, when we have failed to trust you in the moments where we were face to face with them. And I pray that we will not allow bitterness to fester within us when we come up against tough situations in life. And when you test our battery, Lord, I pray that our faith will prove to be in solid working order. Rather than complaining about people or things, may we instead turn to drink of your living water so that we will be able to hold our peace. And we know that in doing so, it will lessen the stress in our lives and promote healing within our spirits and also our physical bodies. We know that sometimes you will allow bitterness into our lives because without it, we'll only crave sweets. And while it tastes good in the moment, it's not nourishing to our souls. So where others may have wronged us, God, I pray that we will see those things nailed to the cross, just as our sins have been. You've already dealt with it, so we don't have to. You are just, so we don't need to seek justice. You will fight for us, just as you have promised. And so for those who may be fighting sickness today, God, we cry out to you, Jehovah Rapha, our healer, we believe in your ability to heal and trust that you will get the glory through it all. I pray that we will never lose hope and continue to hold on to your healing hands. So we thank you for the sweetness of your word today. May it strengthen our faith in every way. We love you so much in Jesus' name. Amen. Heaven and salvation is a divine gift that is given to us by grace. None of us deserve it. In fact, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, and every single one of us have fallen short, and then we desperately need someone to pay that price. And Jesus did it. He didn't do it because we are righteous on our own merit. He did it because He loves us, and He wants to spend eternity with us. But it won't happen if we don't receive Him before we leave this earth as Lord and Savior. Hell is a very real thing, and there is no second chance after we take our last breath here. So I want to be able to give someone the opportunity today who is saying, I'm ready. I've never given my life to Christ. I don't know where I'm going to end up after I die, but I don't want to live another day without knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt where I am going to end up. I see now that this is real and I want to believe. So if that is you, we're going to say a prayer and I'm going to put the words on the screen so that you can say them audibly with your mouth because the Bible says that when you believe and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that he died and rose again, then you will be saved. So we're going to say this prayer together. Believe it in your heart, speak it with your mouth, and know that this is indeed the day of your salvation. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I believe that you came, you died, and you rose again. I confess my sins to you today, and I turn from them, and I now live my life for you. I know that I am forgiven of all my sins, so I receive you now as Lord and Savior, and I belong to you, Jesus. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.